We're reading, first of all, this morning from the book of Acts and the story of the ascension. Luke writes from chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up into heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He'd chosen. After His suffering, He presented Himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that He was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while He was eating with them, He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait until the gift my father promised, which, was he- which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Amen. We then read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, these words of encouragement. Paul writes this, chapter 1 and verse 15. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people, and His incomparably great power for those of us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning to Your Holy Word, I want to pray that Your presence would be here And that your spirit might bless both the words that I speak and all of us as we focus on Jesus. Amen. 
apologies in advance for my, my voice. Um, this is a very special Sunday. It's a special Sunday for all of us as we worship, but it's a special Sunday particularly for Abigail and Haley. And I think for more than them, for their families and for all of you, because you've watched them grow up among you. And this is a blessing and an encouragement. But it's also Ascension Sunday. It's 40 days since Easter last Thursday. And it's a special day in the history of the church. Now, I don't know about you, but I never really bothered with a lot of the church year when I grew up, because I, I grew up a good Presbyterian. We did Christmas and Easter, and we didn't do the rest, because it was all a wee bit, well, not our tradition. Let's put it that way. We maybe did Pentecost, because we quite liked the Holy Spirit, but the rest of it we sort of left on the shelf there. But I have to say, as I've been getting a little bit older, I begin to enjoy how the whole of the year is marked out by the story of Jesus. From Christmas, where He was born, to Epiphany, when He was baptized, to Lent, where we follow Him through the sufferings in the wilderness, to Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Day, 40 days later, to His ascension into heaven, and then Pentecost, as we remember the Spirit being sent. And then, of course, at the end of the year, we come to Advent when we think of Christ coming again. And it's as if we're marking out the whole year as being God's territory in the story of Christ. Just like we call the year, the year 20, I, I get the year wrong these days, sign of age as well, but 2023, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. The whole of history renumbered and remade in the image of Christ. Now, Ascension Day goes right back. In fact, St. Augustine writing, I think, in the fourth century said it went right back to the time of the apostles, which sort of makes sense. Because if you were there on that mountain in Galilee as Christ ascended in all His glory, I think you'd remember. And it might be that on the anniversary of that event that you thought that's a significant thing to celebrate, a wow day when you remembered just who the Jesus who you'd followed through Galilee was. The words find itself into the creed that we will read later. On the third day, He rose again, He ascended to heaven, and is seated on the right hand of the Father, and He will come from there to judge the living and the dead. And that creed is used very often when we baptize or when we are bringing new people into membership of the church, because it reminds us of what we believe. Of course, the vows of membership are about serving and giving and praying and reading and growing and worshiping, and, and, and as Haley and Abigail take them today, there's an encouragement for all of us to say that, yeah, that's what we promised. But here's the thing. It doesn't start with us and our growing, and our serving, and our praying, and our loving, which is just as well, because if it did, it would end in failure. It starts with saying this, Jesus is Savior, and Jesus is Lord. He is reigning at the Father's right-hand side. That's a tremendous thought that when we pray, we pray to Jesus, who is still human, perfectly God, and perfectly man. We pray to Him, 
and we know that he will come back again. The Jesus who has won the victory on the cross, the Jesus who has risen from the dead, the Jesus who in the present is praying for us, the Jesus who in the future will come again. Now, I know there's some folk thinking, well, I don't really know what you're thinking. But perhaps you're thinking, okay, well, what's the practical implication of that? What does that mean for me? Does preaching have to be practical? See, what I want to do just now for a little while is, is do something quite radical and unusual. I don't want to talk about you. I want to talk about God. Is that okay? Is it? A friend challenged me recently that um, sometimes preachers don't talk about God enough. We spend so long thinking about giving people advice about how to live that it becomes a sort of self-help session in a sermon, and people go away thinking, oh, that was useful, but we forget just to focus our eyes on the Lord Jesus. You know, when you go on holiday these days uh, and you take a selfie, you do that? Who takes selfies? Yeah. I remember the old days. This is where I show you my age. I remember the old days where we used to take cameras with us rather than phones. Anyone else remember that? In fact, I remember the old days where you had to put a spool in the back. And then you had to take the picture. And then you had to go to Boots and get it developed. And then you had to remember four weeks later to go and pick it up. And then you had your photos. Not on a screen, but actual photos, and you went round to your friends and you bored them with it. But you were able to say, look, there's the Eiffel Tower, and, and, and there's the, the, there's the, the Champs-Élysées, or, or, or there's Loch Lomond, or there's wherever I've been. And people looked at pictures. But now we just take a selfie, and then we post it on Facebook or on social media. But here's the thing about selfies. Selfies are very much about me. And so instead of showing you pictures of beautiful places that you've never been, I end up showing you a picture of, here's me with the Eiffel Tower in the back. Here's me with Loch Lomond in the back. Here's me with Millport in the background. So what I'm really showing you is a whole bundle of pictures of me, maybe my family or maybe my friends, but it's all about me. Somehow, I photobombed all the pictures. And there is sometimes a sense that we do that with the Bible too. We say, what does this say about me, to me, for me today? What advice does this give me? How does this get me through the week? But what the Word of God wants us to do is to stop looking at ourselves and to start looking at Jesus, because by the way, He takes a much better picture than I do. Jesus, the glorious one. Jesus, the Son of God, who proclaims the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, who has died and raised again. Jesus, who has ascended over all things, sending his Holy Spirit to see the sending Father, the triumphant Son, the powerful Holy Spirit, working together to transform the world forever. The apostles saw that, and they never forget and in that passage, Jesus says to them just before he ascends into heaven, he says this, you will be my witnesses 
in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, when our two folk come and take their vows today, in a sense, that will be the last vow that they take to live their lives out for Jesus in the world, to be witnesses in the world. And my suspicion is of all the things that we promise, that's the one that terrifies us the most, isn't it? How do I witness to Jesus? What do I say? What do I do? Back to me again. And in fact, the church is doing the same thing. The Church of Scotland, the Presbytery Mission Plan is all about how does the Church of Scotland mission, how does it do witnessing relevant today? But here's the thing. You will not be a witness till you understand this. It's about what you've seen, not what you do. It's about what God has done, what God continues to do, what God has promised to do, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glorious, loving, powerful, accomplishing all things. The first thing to understand about mission and about witnessing is it's about God, not about us. Back in the beginning in Genesis, the perfect world, God shows His beauty and His majesty and says it's good. Human beings turn away and do their own thing, and what does God do? He comes hunting in the garden. Adam, Adam, where are you? It's not a word of punishment. It's not a word of anger. It's a word that simply says, where are you? I'm looking for you. I want to walk with you again. You're lost. I want to find you. And that's the picture that we see again and again in the Bible. You'll know the stories that Jesus uses of a father getting up one morning, scanning the road, looking for the lost child. What parent doesn't feel it? Looking. His mission to find him. The shepherd looking for the lost sheep. The woman desperately sweeping the floor because she's lost the valuable coin. We've all lost things and we can't find them. But that's the heart of God the missionary heart of God. It's not about us. It's about Him. His heart for the lost, the broken, the shamed, the rejected, the excluded, the desperate, the proud and the broken, the poor and the rich, shining through the ministry of Jesus in every single story. Now, a little bit of theology. In the early 20th century, if you talked about mission, everybody knew what you meant. It was about the big, successful Western churches sending the missionaries out into the rest of the world to tell people the gospel. But then things happened which shook the confidence of the church. First of all, the missionaries were thrown out of China after the Second World War. But then there was the growing criticism that mission work was often exporting not just the gospel, but Western values, Western capitalism, Western oppression, and out it was going. And there was a loss of confidence. What are we doing in this mission work? But then the church was reminded of a simple truth, that it wasn't the church's mission. It didn't belong to us at all. It was something that God was doing from the beginning when He said, 
Adam, where are you? Where are you? I'm looking for you. As he spoke through his beloved son, Paul puts it this way, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. From Adam, where are you? In Genesis to Revelation 21, where Christ returns and says, the home of God is among men, and he will dwell with them as their God, and they will be his people. That's what Jesus is talking about when he speaks of the kingdom. The mission not shaped by how motivated we get or how strategic we get, but shaped by God and by His loving heart. You know, when you read the book of Acts, and if you haven't read it for a while, just read it. It's a great story. Um, we did those, t- those little Dear Theo books uh, a few years ago, which just said, forget it, reading it, just, just read the story. And the one thing you'll notice if you read the book of Acts, the church does not ever sit down and say, What's our presbytery mission plan? Let's do a a conference with techniques for evangelism. It doesn't do any of that. In fact, what they do is they, they, they almost sit down all the time and think, what's the Holy Spirit up to now? Where's the gospel going? How do we play catch up with what God is doing? In fact, I sometimes think that the book of the Acts of the Apostles should be renamed. And I can I can say that because in the original in the Bible, there is no title. It's not called the Acts of the Apostles. Luke didn't call it that. In fact, Luke probably just called it Book 2 after he wrote his gospel or what Jesus did next. And if you read that book, it's always the church following what the Holy Spirit is doing, playing catch-up. And that's always what what God's mission is all about. You will be my witnesses, says Jesus, and we're left there saying, well, how do I witness? What's the technique? What's the training? What will the results be? I know folk today say, I can't do that. I'm not a minister. I haven't had the training you've had. But imagine this. You're walking down the road, and you see an accident, and the police appeal for witnesses. Can you be a witness? Would you say, well, I'm sorry, officer, I have no experience of witnessing. I haven't done a witness training course. I've never been to witness school. I don't have a degree in witnessing. Nobody will believe me. The defense lawyer will rip me apart. Please don't ask me. Find a professionally trained witness to witness to this accident. No, you wouldn't do any of that, would you? Because you've taken in the view. You've seen the sight. And all you're being asked to do is to see what you've seen. The disciples, that's what they did. They just watched. They saw what God was doing. They saw the splendor of Jesus, and it all came from there. And by the way, don't attempt this in your own strength. That's what Jesus said to them. Just wait till I send my Holy Spirit. Don't try till I come and I take you where I want you to go. You know, when we baptize people, we say very clearly that you are not saved by the things you do. You are saved by what Jesus has done on the cross. But here's the thing that we sometimes miss, because then we give these vows, and we will do it today, about all the things we should do. But you can't do them either in your own strength. 
It's only as we rely on Jesus and on His forgiveness that we're able to do any of these things. But now briefly, just back to the passage. Jesus begins to see these things and the disciples have got a question. Lord, is this the time you're going to give the kingdom back to Israel? And it's one of those questions where you think we're stupid sometimes as, as Christians, but I just got this imagination of Jesus when he hears the question doing a face palm. Oh, for goodness sake. What have we been doing these three years? You thought it was all about a physical temple and a warrior king and a, a violent ejection of the Romans, and I've been showing you a different way. And here you are asking the same question. I've been showing you it's about rejected people and sinful people and forgiving people and feeding people and teaching confused people. And you're back to Romans and centurions and kingdoms. You see, the picture is so much bigger than they're seeing. It's about God sending His Son because He loves the whole world, not just Israel. It's about God sending His Son to restore all things, to bring in a redeemed creation, to set this world that we have broken in so many ways free. That's the size of God's mission that we are shown here. And that question that says, Lord, at this time, are you going to give us back the kingdom? It's almost as if we say in the middle of it, Lord, what about me and my little concerns? What about these Romans and, and our nationalism? And, and what about all of this? And it's almost as if we take this huge big picture of what Jesus has done, and we photobomb it again. We put ourselves back in the middle of what I want. Yeah, minister, all this talk of mission, but how do we get more members? How do we keep the choir going? How do we get more people into the BB? I, the General Assembly is meeting this week, I, I, and I'm not going to give you the statistics we're looking at as a church, but they are dire. And the temptation is for us to say, well, we now have to get serious about mission, because if we don't, we'll have to close all the churches in the next 15 years. We need to get serious about mission because, well, before I retire, there'll not be a stipend. That's a bit of a frightening thought. But it's missing the point. That's us asking, Lord, when will you give us back the Church of Scotland that we want? When he's talking about the redemption of the whole creation and his missionary heart for every single person today. But instead of being excited about what God is doing, about what's on God's heart, about God's goodness, we close it down to our little concerns. Can we talk about Jesus for a bit? Can we see the enormity of what He has done on the cross? Can we see that creation itself is recast in the resurrection? Can we see that justice and love flow into the world, that one day there will be a reckoning for all that is wrong? Can we see creation healed in what He has done? Can we see all of this? Because I believe this is the hope that the world needs and craves today, even when it doesn't know it. Justice flowing like rivers and mercy like an ever-flowing stream. But you know, you cannot sell the church. You cannot go to a mother that's struggling to get the kids to school five days a week to do the shopping to keep the house. You cannot say to her, I want to add to you the incredibly stressful 
process of coming to church on a Sunday morning. Are you up for it? Why? The only way that mission works is where we witness to the enormity of God. And yes, discipleship asks us to do difficult things. Of course it does. But it only works when we see the big picture of the missionary heart of God, when we see His love, when we wonder at His Son, when we grasp the message that is this, and we say, I bear witness that the love and the power of God is to be found among the people of God, and this is good news worth getting out of bed for. So I offer to you just this, just Jesus. Grasp that, and all else falls into place. I've been saying to Haley and Abigail as we've gone through preparation for today, that it is on the first of the promises and declarations that all else stands. Do you see Jesus as Savior? Do you see Jesus as Lord? And if the answer in all our feelings and all our strugglings and yes, in all our doubts is yes, the rest is commentary.